Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Hope Through Grief. Uh, my name is Steve Smilski. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Marshall Edler. Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well today. So we've got an interesting show planned for you today. We've reached out and we've got a uh, friend that Shelly and I have met over the last six years on our journey. And we've invited Alan Peterson in today to have a conversation with us about grief. Alan has a lot of stories. He's met a lot of people over the years. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for having me, uh, both of you. We've got uh, three bereaved dads here with three different stories over a a time span from uh, 19 years that I've been on this journey uh, down to uh, just over a couple years. So uh, we all have different backgrounds. Those always, in my opinion, make for the best conversations. And thank you for the honor of uh, having uh, just a conversation with you about this crazy life we live, not the life we ever intended or planned to live, but nevertheless, the life um, that we've been given to live and how we do it and how we do it every day and how we just uh, keep breathing, keep telling our story. So thank you for letting me share in this conversation with the two of you. I, I am deeply, deeply honored. Thank you. The honor is ours. Um, why don't we... Um, let you tell us about how your journey of grief started and it's a rather long journey and there's going to be a lot of things that you can share with us, but let's start with that. Well, let's start with, uh, I guess how it started. I, I had a, my background is uh, I've always been a writer. I didn't graduate college because I thought I knew more than they knew. I, I, I could tell people I went to college just long enough to learn how to enjoy uh, warm beer and cold pizza and uh, I started playing the guitar. I started enjoying it. I'd always been kind of a poet. So I began playing music, but I got into writing uh, of all types. I ended up in the publishing business and uh, publishing national trade magazines, uh, writing, any kind of writing I could get my hands on. But my first love was certainly um, music. I moved to Nashville and the 90s and, and wrote uh, for about four years there. I used to write for Hank Williams Jr.'s publishing company. Never had got a major label cut, but, you know, I was kind of swimming with the big fish, learning how to write there. I moved back to Colorado, where I'm from. I have three children, my oldest, Ashley, and then two boys, Rocky and Alan Jr. I moved back to Colorado and I decided I was going to get my writing fixed by doing radio. I also had a love for radio. So I worked for Westwood One Radio Network. I was kind of their grunt reporter out of Denver, Colorado. I covered sports for a while, which was a lot of fun covering the Broncos and the Nuggets and the Rockies and the Avalanche. And then I moved over into the news department. I was doing some consulting for other companies. And, you know, life was pretty good. The radio was kind of my fun job. And and then the consulting work was the stuff that kind of paid the bills. And all that changed on August 15th, 2001. I was taking my stepson to uh, Tucson, Arizona, where he was going to be a freshman at the University of Arizona to freshman orientation. My daughter had been out with him the night before Ashley to, um, to a going away party for some of those kids as she was staying in Colorado. And I got a telephone call when I got to the city limits of Tucson telling me that Ashley had been killed in an automobile accident 
that day. And so, you know, uh, we were talking earlier before we recorded a little bit and Marshall was, you know, we talked about that first moment we hear about it. But I, I, I say this, that phone call is the day that life as I knew it ended. And the day, uh, the day that life as I now know it began. And I think for people like us, it is the demarcation point in our lives. It seems like everything happened before that date or since that date. So when you say, where did it start? It started there on the side of uh, the interstate. Uh, not knowing what to do, I walked around in a circle saying, what do I do? What do I do? You know, what do we do? There's, uh, there's, there's no book. There's no way you can rehearse the hurt or practice the pain. We are in such shock that we don't know what to do. And so somehow I found my way back to Colorado, to the scene of the accident. It happened just outside of Grand Junction, Colorado, built a roadside memorial, went over and, and just frozen solid with grief. And you guys know that feeling. You see people's lips moving, but you can't tell what they're saying. You know, months later, people would say, wow, that was a beautiful service you had for Ashley. We had five, 600 people there. And I go, it was? You were there? You know, I mean, uh, it just uh, in a complete funk and in a blur. So, you know, people, when I tell my story and, you know, everyone's story is different. People say, well, what was the worst day of your life? You would think that the worst day would be August 15th, 2001. But that was not the worst day of my life. The worst day of my life actually came a few months later because the casseroles came and the food came and the and the people came and then they all went home. But a few months later, I woke up one morning and I looked out the window, saw the rest of the world going on with life as though Ashley had never lived as though she hadn't died and as though I wasn't just sinking in a pit of grief that I didn't understand, that I didn't feel prepared to handle. And, uh, you know, that's the day I went in the shower and let out a, a primal scream, the likes of which had never come out of, out of my body. And uh, that's the day when I knew I needed uh, something, uh, some help, support, and it's, it's the day I found, uh, in my case, a group called the Compassionate Friends. So that's where it started for me. My grief journey really didn't start until I could unfreeze just enough that I could begin to maybe wrap my head a little bit uh, around what I was doing. And so that's where it started. That's chapter one. How old was Ashley when she passed? Thank you for, uh, for asking that, Marshall. Ashley was 18 years old. 18. And she had just graduated uh, high school, was going to take a trip from Denver on her own. I knew nothing about it. And there's kind of a, a lot more to that story. We can talk about some other time. But she took kind of an unplanned road trip out of Denver. She was headed out to California with a friend. And uh, we believe she fell asleep at the wheel, was not wearing a seatbelt on Interstate 70, mile marker four, just four miles from going into Utah. And on kind of a lonely stretch of road, we believe she fell asleep. The car flipped. Ashley was thrown from the car. Uh, no one witnessed the accident. A truck driver came up and found her on the side of the road, and she was dead at the scene of the accident. And uh, with a seatbelt, uh, there's no question they believe she would have survived probably without a scratch. So, um, you know, those are things as we look back, we always think, well, what could we have done, said to influence, make a difference? But that is how she died at 18 years old and just just getting started in life. 
you know, it's ironic. I actually know that road. Again, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and lived in Florida the last 40 years. But before we started, I think I told you my sister lives in Denver. She lives in Aurora. And we were in Moab, Utah, and we drove from Moab to see her in Denver, and we were on 70. And I know that Utah, Colorado, there's nothing there. I mean, no, it, it's a lonely stretch. Lonely. You, you, passed, you passed right by where she uh, she died. So wow, I was just out there a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, yeah. That's ironic because, you know, I remember about 60 miles from the Utah, we were in Utah, from the Utah-Colorado line, there was a sign that says, this is the last rest stop of any nature until the Colorado line, I go 60 miles. Are they kidding? I go, I don't know if my, if my bladder's strong enough for that for, for 60 miles of no rest stop and realize, well, I guess I can make my own rest stop pulling off the side of the road. But it's funny how sometimes there's a convergence of people and I, we never met and I never, I did not know how Ashley passed or where she passed. But I've been on that road. What are the odds of that? Of all the roads in the United States, I know exactly where that road is. Yep, it's 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 definitely out in the badlands there in the high deserts of Colorado. So, yeah, there you are. Alan, could you tell us what's Ashley like? Give us a little little update on Ashley. What's she like? Ashley was um, – she was always for the underdog. Ashley was a writer like me and an intellectual, a lot like Matt. In fact, when we talked about Matt earlier off the air, um, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, Ashley I could see in there. She was a deep thinker, always for the underdog. And I always tell people she was generous. She would gladly give people the shirt off of my back. You know, she, 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 you couldn't pass a, you know, a little donation bucket. Uh, she didn't have anything. So uh, I always said whenever I went anywhere with Ashley, if I came home with five dollars in my my wallet left, I had earned five dollars that day. But she uh, she was an amazing soul. She was turning out to be an incredible writer. When I worked for Westwood One Radio, I was the grunt reporter. And when I was doing news on Sunday nights, my job would be to go in and write the headlines over the weekend, kind of wrap the weekend up. And then people subscribed to that service. So we had 450 radio stations around the country. They would come in on, you know, on Monday morning. And if there had been a big story in Denver, you know, I'd write the story and put some sound with it. Well, she was so good and so talented. That job used to take me about three to four hours. Uh, she could go into the studio with me on Sunday nights it was just us there and she could write so well that we could do it in about an hour and a half to two hours and her stuff would pass muster with my editors in Houston and they were tough. So really blossoming as a writer, really into philosophy. She played soccer, world's worst soccer player by far I've ever seen. She, uh, she could play a uniform on a muddy field and have the cleanest uniform at the end of the game. <laughs> You've ever seen, uh, couldn't, couldn't sing a note, but loved all kinds of music. And her and I would listen, uh, play games where, you know, I grew up in gospel music and, 
and country music. And uh, but then, of course, I got into rock. But we'd listen to everything from rap music to uh, classical music and everything in between. She had just such a love and appreciation for it. So thank you for that question. I always love when I can uh, say a little bit about her life. She was she was my biggest fan in music, but my harshest critic. So what better combination could you ask for? Well, thanks for sharing her with us. So she she did get to hear you play your music? Oh, yeah. We lived in Nashville. Uh, when I lived in Nashville, Ashley lived with me. I was divorced and kind of another convoluted story there. But she always uh, had to live with me. And so a huge fan of my music. When I have a great Garth Brooks story. Um, Garth Brooks and I have common friends and so he was in a restaurant. I was in a restaurant. He came over and he sat down at the table. And my daughter loved this guy. I mean, this is like <laughs> bigger than life to him. And he sat down with my kids. My uh, my two boys were there too. But he came over and sat down for about 20, 30 minutes and just chatted things up with her. And uh, I was like the highlight of her life. And she, you know, she tried to tell her friends. And But to tell you what what a great guy Garth Brooks is. And, I, and I've hung out with him a few other times, but he is such a great guy that no one had a pen or a pencil there. And, and, and he knew she wanted an autograph. And so he gets up from the table, just walks up to the hostess stand, asks for paper and a pencil and walks back down and sits and writes, uh, writes uh, an autograph for her, which was one of her uh, treasured possessions. So yes, she was, definitely a big fan of my of songwriting from the time she was just a little girl i wrote her whole life so oh that's great to hear tough critic though huh? tough yeah tough so you touched on a little bit about the early grief and it takes two to three months before you get to the point where you feel you can reach out to help you figure out what to do or where to go what did you do who did you reach out to you mentioned the compassionate friends. I actually call myself a fortunate griever because two things came along in my life about the same time. After Ashley died, I said, I'm not going to write music. You know, Marsha, earlier you mentioned you may never go to the city of San Diego. Right. Well, I said that after Ashley died, I would never drive on Interstate 70. Well, um, and that sounded right to me at the time, but as somebody who's done 1,600 concert events now in the last whatever years, you try to crisscross this country and never use I-70. It's not too feasible. <laughs> but uh, I was very fortunate, and I call myself a fortunate griever because two things intersected. Uh, I found the compassionate friends. I knew nothing uh, about this organization. I walked in there the first night, and, and I met a Steve. His name was Gene, but the same kind of thing. I walked in. I met this Denver a police department captain whose only son had died in kind of a freak accident. And here this tough police officer hugs me, tells me I don't have to walk this journey by myself, that I'm in the right place. And, um, you know, I didn't know if I was in the right place, but it was the Jefferson County, Colorado chapter of the Compassionate Friends. And if you look out the window where we meet, you literally can see the hillside where the first shots were fired at Columbine High School. I lived in that neighborhood and covered that story in radio. Wow, wow. So I found a group of people there who, uh, who weren't going to teach me a grief course. What they were going to do is walk with me. They were going to let me, they were going to normalize things for me. And I think the most important thing 
that we need when we're new, I got. Because there's people out there that want to rationalize our loss or spiritualize our loss or pathologize our loss. But what the Compassionate Friends does is normalizes it. You know, when I said, hey, I want to go be with Ashley. Well, if you say that, you know, to somebody outside of this little world, they go, oh, my gosh, we, we got to get you help now. But they help you to understand that those are normal feelings. Now, if you're making a plan and you're going to, you know, that you, that you want to harm yourself, you need additional support. But they normalize me. They let me say my story and say her name again and again and again. So I was very fortunate for that. And then about that same time, a couple months later, I found a group that was created, a grief support group, a different than Grief Share, but it was created by a man named Dr. Alan Wolfeld out of uh, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And it was a 10-week grief program. And that's really where I learned about grief. It's where I could sit down now that I had this support and then I could learn that, you know, I was in trauma, acute grief, that this was going to hit me emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually, and, and things that I could do. You know, we talk about the pain and grief and all of these things that it does to us, but what can we actually do? And this program helped me to understand what I could do. So by the time I got through my first year, and I was so new in grief, I at least began to form a plan in my head that all that was going to matter and all that was going to make a difference is what I could go do with my life. If Ashley's voice was going to be heard, I had to be the one saying it. Her, I had to be her voice. I had to be her hands. And I had to be her feet. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? And at one year, I was not ready. But over the course of the next year, I took what I was learning. My compassionate friends became my lifeline, my absolute lifeline. So when people out there would say ridiculously stupid things to me and or have expectations and benchmarks that I should be meeting in my grief, my compassionate friends would say they don't know what they're talking about. So they got me through. And in my second year, I decided that I was going to mess around with music. I started out late at night. I, I'm not a real public prior, but late at night, I would get my guitar out and I would, uh, when everybody was in bed and I'd play songs that I used to play for Ashley that she loved, like Brown Eyed Girl. Uh, not, not all songs I'd written. And man, I could just cry. And then one night I start hearing this, you know, like the writers do, a lyric and this and that. And before long, I'm writing songs and I just wrote them for me. And what's interesting, I like to tell people this, if you're not a songwriter, it might not mean that much to you. But when you're living in Nashville, you're always trying to write a song for somebody else. I never fancied being a recording artist. That was never, but I always wanted to write songs for somebody else. You're always telling somebody else's story. So for the first time in my professional life as a songwriter, I said, I don't care if one person likes this music. I could care less. I'm going to write what I feel because I don't hear a lot of music that really tells what this story is like. So I wrote a collection of songs and I played a couple of them for some people in my, um, in my group, which uh, I always tell people that was either the greatest thing I ever did or the biggest mistake I ever made. But uh, they said, oh, you got to go in the studio and record them. 
And there's a great story, and I don't, we don't have time for all of them, but uh, God's hand was at work in my life. Even when I was so mad, I, 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 I could spit at God. God's hand was at work because the people that came into my life to help me produce that first record called Ashley's Songbook were amazing, the connections they had back to Ashley. But at about the two-year mark, I came out with a, a CD of music called Ashley's Songbook. And I went to the National Conference of the Compassionate Friends, and I just took 200 of them and put them in their bookstore. And I believe they sold out in less than a day. And I got home and the phone started ringing from groups all over the country saying, would you come and would you play and speak? And, you know, most of them like, we don't have any money, but we'll do our best to get you here. And that began something called the Angels Across the USA Tour that I started really in 2004 so. We're 16 years, and I've traveled, like I said, to over 1,600 cities all across the country, playing and speaking. And uh, and at first, I just played the songs because I didn't know anything about grief. But I later went and became certified uh, uh, and became a grief services provider through the American Grief Academy. And so that was the next step in my grief. I just kept learning and learning and meeting tens of thousands of people, uh, shaking their hands, hugging their necks hearing their stories like uh, of Matt and Jordan. And then eventually I started doing workshops and those became quite popular. So that's what my life is today. And that was a real quick speed through there, but, uh, but that's kind of where grief took me. And it gave me something I could do. I believe that I am on this earth to be Ashley's dad for as long as I live not for as long as she lived. And the way that I can best do that is to take all of what I believe she stood for and to put that out in the world in honor of her. And I know that it makes a difference. And in that difference, it helps me to heal and it helps me to feel like she's just working with me every day of my life. Ellen, that's incredible. Like, you know, the things you're saying, it just sort of resonates with me. Like you mentioned Columbine, and I remember obviously when that happened, and we were in Washington, D.C. with the kids. We took them to D.C. when that happened, and I remember talking to Matt and David and just you know talking about how random life can be. These kids were just, they thought, in a safe place. They were in school. And obviously, since then, we realize school's not necessarily the safe place that we thought it was when we were growing up. Society's changed. And the bubble of protectiveness that I know I had for my children, as you grow old, you realize there's chips in that thought process that it's an illusion or, or delusion thinking oh i can guarantee my children's safety and you always think you can until you can't and the three of us have lost children and obviously we'd have done anything humanly possible to prevent them from passing as many other people would, but it's not in our power to do that. And I think 
what you're saying about living your life, which is what I'm trying to do also as a tribute to Ashley is what I'm trying to do with Matt. And it just, again, it just shows you we're all here a short time. You got to make it the best time possible. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, like I, people ask me, we didn't even know how to answer this, but now I know how to answer this. You know, so many times you see somebody, they always ask you, well, what do you do for a living? Lawyer. I've been for 40 years. I've said that many, many times. The next thing is, do you have children? And I, Debbie and I talk, what do we say? We lost a child. And we say, I, I said, I, 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 I have two sons. Not, I had two sons. I have two sons in the present. Matt is still with me, not physically on this earth, but he's still with me, and he's always going to be my son. My parents passed away. They're still my parents. Matt's still my son. And I think as you get older and more philosophical, not that it gives you an answer, but it does give you some solace or contentment realizing that you know grief is part of the human experience for better or for worse. Either we're going to die, people are going to grieve us, or we're going to live and people we love are going to pass and we're going to grieve them. And he, it sounds like Ashley and Matt were very kindred souls and I think that knowing them the way we did for me I always try to look at it as a honor that I had the opportunity to be his father for 32 years and would I have liked to see him grow up and experience life? Absolutely but that wasn't in the cards and it doesn't make me appreciate what he did when he was here any less because he did the most with the time that he had, right. which is all any of us could do. Right. And, you know, we look at our children and I say Ashley lived her whole life and, uh, you know, in 18 years and three months. And, you know, we look back and, you know, I used to early in grief, even when I was out playing, I would say 18 years, that's all we had, 18 years, that's all we had, 18 years, that's all we had. And one day I thought, you know what, 18 years, we had all that. Now, it was not enough, and I don't want anybody to ever think, oh, wow. But if I don't have gratitude for those 18 years, and we all get to there in our own time and in our own way, and we may have people here listening who are very new in their grief. So don't, because you, that you don't feel that today. When I say something like that, it's just to say that, you know what, I was where you are, where I couldn't see gratitude for the 18 years, but I have learned that within those 18 years by actually living, I got to love at a level I never thought humanly possible. Mm -hmm. When she died, I heard at a level I never thought humanly imaginable and then the journey of trying to find life again, and that's really what the word bereaved means. 
living with loss, living the rest of our lives. And that journey is a life journey. I've learned more in the journey of trying to find life without Ashley than I ever could have gotten from all the education in the world. I've learned uh, uh, things about compassion and, and about not judging people so harshly. So there are many gifts Ashley left for me. It takes time for us, but if we stay open and if we continue to live, because if we don't continue to live, then two lives were lost that day. Right. And, uh, you know, it's real easy for people who haven't had our loss to say, well, Ashley wouldn't want you to do that. Well, you know what? I don't like when you say that to me, but you put another person who's had the same loss as me next to me. And uh, uh, we know that that our children would want us to live and we can tap into that love and who they were, the essence of who they are. And I'm with you. I have a daughter, Ashley. She will be a part of my life every day I take a breath. So that's the news that, that I want people to know, that when you're ready to begin to let go of some of the pain, you can let go of some of the pain without having to release one ounce of the love. And that's what keeps people stuck in grief often, is they, don't, they, they, they equate the pain with having to let go of the love. But you'll know when you're ready. And when you get to that place, we can let go of a little of the pain. And it actually opens us up more to have space to grab on and hold on to the love. And that's really what our journey is all about. Alan, I heard you say, I forget when it was, but you've said that when you get invited, let's say, to a party, you'll say, okay, as long as Ashley comes with me. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's great. You know, I do a, a, one of the workshops I do in the fall. I'll be doing some of them virtually this year. I do one on handling the holidays. But I tell newly grieving people this all the time because, you know, you asked, uh, you said something, Marshall, that's very interesting. People ask us how many children we have. Well, you know, you, you think my pat answer would be, well, you know, I have my boys and I have Ashley or, you know, sometimes I'll say I have two boys, you know, AJ and my daughter uh, died in an automobile accident when she was 18. And sometimes, frankly, I don't tell people not everybody's entitled to know that I'm a bereaved parent because maybe I don't think they can handle it. So it's a very personal choice how we do it. But as I uh, and again, I had such great grief information early on that it helped me to help myself and now to help others. But if people would ask me uh, to an event, and especially in those early years, I'd say, you know, they'd invite me and I'd say, look, I don't know whether or not I'm going to be able to make it to that first whatever Thanksgiving dinner uh, or the second one. But I always said to people, do not invite me to any event, friends, family, whoever. Do not invite me if Ashley is not invited. And what I meant by that was simply, I'm not going to show up in an Ashley t-shirt, an Ashley hat, an Ashley balloons, and expect the whole conversation to be about this poor, pitiful, grieving dad whose daughter died. But I'll be damned, excuse my language, if I'm going to show up and pretend that I am not Ashley's dad. And so what I ask people is I say, you know, I just want to be able to talk about her and to not shy away from her name. And I let people know how important it is for us to hear the name, say the name, see the name. So I want to be free to talk about Ashley just as free 
as I am anybody else. And I promise I won't be Debbie Downer at your party. But I, I, but if I feel like telling a story, and if you're not comfortable, I understand completely. But don't invite me because I won't show up and suffer in silence because others are uncomfortable with my loss. And that keeps her alive. That keeps her right then and there. And when we tell people, I have a child, I have a daughter, Ashley, I have a son, Matt, I have a son, uh, Jordan. When we say that, it changes the demeanor of people as well. Now, some people will just, there's an old saying, when when someone asks how many children you have, and, and I say I have two sons and my daughter, Ashley, died, if their next question is about your living children, <laughs> they can't handle the grief. If their next question is about your child that died, they're probably a safe person with you to talk to about it. That's really interesting. You know, I have been amazed how people react, and I'll say two different things here. You know, being a lawyer, I interact publicly before the pandemic. So after Matt passed, I saw two different reactions from people. Some people I could almost sense that they thought that my grief was contagious, that it was like a coronavirus that we didn't know about back then. And then other people would come up to me and be so heartbroken. And a lot of these people, you'd be, I'd be holding my arms, they were crying, and I realized they never met Matt. They didn't know who he was, and they're not really crying for Matt. They're probably crying for their own grief that they've experienced or fear of grief that they will experience. And then, which made me sort of think about the first group that thought maybe this was contagious, and I joke about it now and I say, it is contagious. If you're a human being, you're going to catch grief. You will catch it. So it is contagious because you're human. And Lord knows the pandemic has turned the world of grief upside down. And people that never thought about grief are just changing their life differently. You know, I saw this on the news was yesterday. There was this young man who's volunteering for the vaccine trials, which could be dangerous. You don't know if it's a placebo or it's something that's going to help him hurt him. And as a young man, they asked him, why are you doing this? And he said he, he lost seven family members to the coronavirus. It's grief. But for grief, do you think this young person would have any interest in being a guinea pig for this vaccine? And it just shows you how I think all three of us and so many other people that have lost loved ones can make the world a so much better place as a tribute to our lost loved ones. You know, this young man's efforts to help with his vaccine, it could lead to a cure. Who knows? But at least he's trying. And that to me is, I know it's, you are so far ahead of where I am. I'm two years out, you're 19 years out. And I know this is such a lifelong journey that 
as I'm on, I just come up with more questions than answers. But the one thing I keep on thinking about is, you know, there's a Jewish saying that when somebody, you mentioned somebody who's passed on, you say, may their memory be a blessing. And that's what I want, because I know Matt was a blessing. And I want his memory to be forever a blessing because of all the things that he did while he was here and all the things that I'm going to try to do as a tribute to him while I'm here. So that was really interesting when you mentioned about the party because I can see how people react and it just is different because we're different. Yeah, I call it grieving out loud. Grieve loud, grieve proud. It's the life we were uh, we were handed, and mm-hmm. so what do we do? Let, let's live it loudly and proudly. That's what that's what gets me up in the morning. We all need a reason, and you do the next thing. And so the next thing for me now is to get myself back out on tour, which I'm working on. So you're on the right path. Uh, you know, I there's a lot I could say about it, but doing this podcast that you're doing, telling your story. And just doing what you can at your own pace to remember Matt and to remember and honor Jordan. That in itself, running a grief share program, those are the things that pay big dividends. This is a lifelong journey. I like the way you just said that. It's not, it doesn't have to be a life sentence. It is a lifelong journey. It can feel like a life sentence. Uh, at time. And we have to acknowledge that, that no matter how much we do and how many people we might make an impact on, it still hurts. And we still have those raw, difficult times. And to give ourselves permission to have those and feel those and lay in that uh, heavy, hard grief. But there is also hope and healing when we do the next thing and when we move forward and when we reach out, there is no question that there is post-traumatic growth in this grief. There's transformational healing power. And I've seen thousands of people doing things today they never would have done. Maybe the two of you thought, would you have ever thought you'd be doing a podcast? All right. So, uh, you know, this is kind of my message, and I, I was going to try to, you know, I know you wanted more stories today, but one of the things in my message that I tell people at any, wherever they are in grief is grief is going to take you somewhere. You're not going to be the same. And, and, and we know, and, and, and if you think, think how scary grief is in a sense, because When we have the loss, the life that we knew, we instinctively know that life is gone. Okay. It doesn't mean life ends, but that life is gone. But then we walk through this valley and who we are going to become in this grief, that is not yet formed. And that is a scary place to be walking between those two things. Are we going to carry the loss with us the rest of our lives? Of course, because the love is never going to go away. So I, I think when we, you know, the one thing that if people can just take where you are right now in your grief and realize the view is not going to always be the same. How you feel today 
And that's why we can help others and why this podcast can. But grief's going to take you somewhere. And it's like a big wave. You can run head on into that wave. Boom. It'll knock you on your rear end every day. You can walk and get up every morning and run. Or at some point, you can get up on top of the wave and say, you know what? I don't know where this is going to take me. But ride that wave. And it is amazing the things I've been able to do and see and people that I've met and the life that I've been able to have simply because I said, I don't know where it's taking me. I'll write the songs. I'll show up. I'll trust God that the finances will be there. And like I said, here's two guys uh, that, I, you know, I, if you, uh, no, I would never think you'd be doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. But God bless you. Here you are. And uh, here I am with you. If you hadn't done what you did, I wouldn't be here with you today. And somebody's life will be touched today. And that's the great healing circle that we, that's the circle of healing, the circle of hope that grief offers. It offers the opportunity for ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And that's why I love being a part of something like this today. I'm excited for the possibilities of where all this will take uh, uh, all of us, but especially you guys. Oh, thank you. Tell us a little bit about Angels Across America. I love that whole concept and idea. Well, I got a funny story for you because you just said Angels Across America, and that's what I wanted to call this thing. It was the first name. So I went to get, you know, the angelsacrossamerica.com. It's actually called Angels Across the USA, but definitely I wanted to be Angels Across America. I did have USA, but you couldn't do America? No, but but I went and I looked and I wanted to get, you know, get it. And I thought, well, I couldn't get it because I found out that Victoria's Secret owns Angels Across America. And I thought, (laughs) what on earth? Well, apparently they've got a big tour bus. And when they go around back in the day, they would. Like they would go into cities and do this blitz with these Victoria's Secret models coming off of the bus. So I had to go call mine, the Angels Across the USA. And I used to tell people, it's real interesting at some of our events, you know, some young young men would show up uh, thinking, uh, getting the name wrong. And boy, were they sadly disappointed when they saw <laughs> the only person wearing underwear was me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, let me t- so it started out where, I mean, I'll just get real raw with you. I, I, um, I was back from my songwriting experience. That's a tough business. Living in Nashville, it, it, you know, everybody knows it's, it's tough. Uh, and I was tired of the music business. But as I did this first CD and then there started to be this demand for it, I thought, well, okay, these people are asking me to come here. So I planned a single road trip. And, uh, and, and, and I, I lived in, in Denver area at the time. And I started out, a woman invited me to a big event back in New Hampshire, in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was a, a butterfly garden dedication, and she was going to have 500 people at it. She said, come, we'll, we'll raise the money. So, and then, you know, you'll, you'll sell CDs and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, okay. Well, she thought I was going to fly there. I thought, no, I'm not going to. Ashley and I, we're going to take a road trip. So I left Colorado and I played in in a city called St. Francis, Kansas. And then the next night I played somewhere in Nebraska, then another place in Nebraska. Then I went up into, I ended up going into Cleveland and then 
finally back to New Hampshire, kind of played my way. I don't even know if it was a 10 events and it's been so long ago. And I sat down like, you know, I normally would. And, and I, and I kind of like took an Excel spreadsheet and thought, Hmm, this is really going to be expensive. And I, at that time, I just said, people, you can pay whatever you can afford to pay because part of this ministry, and it is to this day, the same thing is that I wanted it to be ministry based. I wanted it to be available to all but I had no reference point of how that would happen. So I had the money, obviously. I just set it aside. I thought, you know, if nobody buys a CD and people donate a little, whatever, I'm going to do this. It's just a me and Ashley road trip. So I went into this little town of St. Francis, Kansas. It's right on the Colorado border. There's not even the hotel I stayed in had fans in the window. There wasn't a restaurant there. There was a gas station. And there, I'm at this little church, and uh, I'm like, okay, there's a little uh, compassionate friends group there. But some of the town people showed up. Anyway, I played my first event, and, uh, the you know, they had dessert and stuff afterwards. I don't know, about 50 people showed up, 60 people showed up. I got done at the end of the night, and I had looked, and people had bought almost $500 worth of CDs. And I'm like, there's no way, because in the songwriting world, you know, if you play for a group of 50 people, you're, you're going to sell five, 10 CDs. I'm like, what on earth happened? And then I also had these little wristbands that said angels across uh, or angels are forever. But anyway, I just made my way on across the country and I came back and I thought, you know what? I paid all my expenses and I got enough here that I can go do another trip. And so I just did another trip. I just put it out to groups and then it just got to be where, um, you know, I would just go, go, go. And then then a few years after doing it, I began to realize it, it was an expensive proposition. So I bought a van and I put a, a, a wrap on it that said Angels Across the USA. And I told people, look, I want to play for any group, anywhere, any size, regardless if they have a dime to pay me. And, you know, some groups do. They can afford to cover your, your expenses of whatever, four or $500 an event. But anyway, people started uh, sponsoring butterfly decals with the names and hometowns for $100 of their uh, children on it. And, um, our, you know, children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, some people would sponsor their parents. And that kind of became the thing. And I'm in my third iteration of that. I believe Jordan's riding with me now, uh, Steve. And thank he you is. for that. But that is uh, how I was able to do what I do. So just year after year. The most you know, one year I did 119 cities, which is which was is tough. Uh, and you know, by yourself driving, I didn't have a road crew, but it just grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And I just tried to limit to groups of the compassionate friends or people helping families who'd lost children. I expand out sometimes, and I do other types of groups as well. So it's been a blessing. I can't. I I didn't ever think I wanted to live my life on the road again. But basically in the spring, I leave in February and I'm not done till um, Memorial Day. And in the fall, I leave right after Labor Day and I finish right before Thanksgiving. And then in one of my off times when I'm down, I, I, I will fly to a few events. But what a great way to meet tens of thousands of people and present these workshops and present these concerts and you just learn, you know, people say, well, where'd you learn all that about grief? Well, you hear enough stories, hug enough necks, 
shake enough hands. Uh, you learn what works for people. You learn what doesn't work for people. And you just kind of put it all in there and put it back out in your own words. But, but it's been a real blessing doing the Angels Across the USA Tour. That wraps up our part one of our episode with Alan Peterson this week. Thank you for joining us. Please stay tuned for next week when we release episode 16, part two with Alan Peterson. Remember, if you have any questions or you'd like to reach out to us and you've got questions about a particular topic, go ahead and send them into our website and we'll be sure to get them on the air over the next few weeks. Thank you for listening today to Alan Peterson on Hope Through Grief. Thank you for joining us on Hope Through Grief with your co-hosts, Marshall Adler and Steve Smusky. We hope our episode today was helpful and informative. Since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.